Chef Auguste Escoffier is a culinary legend, but for Michel Escoffier, he was just great-granddad. He used to get caught off guard by the big reactions to his last name. So the chef arrives and the manager says, oh, may I introduce you to Michel Escoffier, the great-grandson of, and he hardly finishes the sentence that the guy says, oh my God, and practically embraces me. What's well, a good thing you were related to him. <laughs> the Auguste Escoffier School of Culinary Arts continues the legacy for the next generation of chefs. Learn more at escoffier.edu. That's E-S-C-O-F-F-I-E-R dot E-D-U. Hey, thanks to our presenting sponsor, Bob's Red Mill. Stay tuned at the break for their quiz. Hey, everyone. This is part two of our two-part series on Bean Boozled, sock-flavored jelly beans, and the secret world of flavor technology that makes them possible. But if you haven't listened to part one, go back and check it out. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. Last time on Proof, our producer Sarah Joyner embarked on a trek to discover how Jelly Belly's bad flavored beans are made. This journey really started with a jelly bean that tastes like socks. Beg your pardon. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Lord. What do you think is in that? Um, I don't know. Just so there you'll know, the really nasty ones, it's not like there's something really nasty in the ingredient. What we call taste is actually flavor. It occurs with little sensors in our nose. Well, a lot of times we try to find the object that we're trying to emulate. There are dozens of articles out there that credit Jelly Belly's bad flavor development to these instruments. Gas chromatograph, mass spectrometer. These mass spectrometers have been uh, used to conduct a search for life on Mars. Relying exclusively on the machine never gave you the full capability of identifying what it was that was wrong. Because the problem with the machine is that it's a machine. So after all that, last week what we learned is that machines are not going to take over the world. We're not when it comes to our food, at least. So let's recap really quickly. This is what we know. Jelly Belly creates bad-flavored beans. They use a real smelly sock as a starting place to build a sock-flavored bean. My theory is that they use a GC mass spec to create a blueprint for building the flavor. And that blueprint, I guess, tells us what's in an actual smelly sock, right? But not how to trick any human senses into thinking it's tasting one. Right, because with an identical molecular reproduction of a sock's aroma compounds, we might not perceive a smelly sock flavor. Because, frankly, we're really tricky. As humans, our sensory experiences are very susceptible to a variety of factors. So they have this technically perfect blueprint that sort of misses the mark. So some people, some humans, have to take that blueprint and tweak it and perfect it and add all the uniquely human data that the machine can't give us. 
So who are these human calculators of taste? They are called flavorists or flavor chemists, and they're the key to unlocking the secret of the sock-flavored jelly bean. Now, I want to warn you, I'm going to take you on a bit of a detour from our jelly bean journey, but um, stick with me. I promise it's worth it. So imagine 1851, London, a huge glass and steel building kind of rises. This is Nadia Berenstein. She's a flavor historian. This is the famous palace exhibition, also known as... Nadia tells me that the flavorist trade began in the mid-18th century. There was a World's Fair in London called the Great Exhibition of the Works of Industry of All Nations, um, which is quite a mouthful. And it was at this fair that synthetically flavored food showed up for the first time. Visitors stroll through this exhibition hall looking at national exhibits of the products of different countries. Among all of these things, right, among the glory and the junk, there's a new kind of taste that's on display. Specifically, it was a sugar drop, a hard lozenge-like candy, flavored with a chemical called amyl acetate that tastes like pear. So these enterprising chemists sort of caught on and began to use synthetic chemicals to flavor all sorts of things. At this time, there's a demand for chemical flavor additives for many reasons, you know, mainly for commerce. Imagine you're producing a pear-flavored food product, but there's a pear shortage one year. A synthetic pear flavor is much more reliable. So as the need for these products developed, the kind of increasingly sophisticated group of skilled professionals started making them. This group of skilled professionals is what we now call flavorists. They're chemists or oftentimes former perfumers who are honing their skills, combining these flavor compounds in new and exciting ways as the synthetic flavor world is blossoming. So one of the things that I found, you know, digging through some archives was an obituary mentioning the proprietor of a flavor company. His name was Dr. Rudolf Pabst. And in his obituary, it uh, mentioned that in his will, he left all of his flavor recipes, all of his flavor formulas, this kind of top secret black book uh, to his son to carry on, keeping that as a trade secret closely held. Flavor makers start to collect themselves into these small groups like secret trade houses. They developed recipes, techniques, and expertise which rarely exchanged hands. They're training their bodies, but specifically their senses of smell. And this sort of embodied knowledge that requires intense studying and natural ability. And also, in order to enter the trade, to get access to training or any information, really, you had to be really well-connected. And this is the flavorist way of keeping their skill set lucrative. They were very expensive, so they're kind of intentionally keeping their group small so that they can maintain their value. So as time goes on, small flavor companies start to pop up. These are businesses that formulate, curate, and sell flavor formulas to the massive burgeoning food industry. But secrecy remains crucial. It was possible for companies to have 
a secret molecule, like a secret ingredient to have kind of exclusive uses of a molecule that other people were desperate to figure out. A lot has changed because of FDA regulations. Everyone's sort of operating with the same ingredients now, and the industry's really consolidated. Today, there are only about 400 professional flavorists worldwide. There are literally fewer flavorists than active professional baseball players in the MLB. I want to be a flavorist when I grow up now. No, I hope I hope that children are saying that yeah. because they're really a remarkable group of people. Their expertise is massive and mysterious. These are skilled chemists whose noses are expertly trained to identify molecular aroma compounds. And they make sommeliers look like amateurs. And what used to be a landscape flush with mom-and-pop flavor shops is now an industry dominated by less than 10 big flavor houses who control about 75% of the market. And it's a pretty big market. We're talking billions each year, not millions. These big players are contracted by all of the major food and bev companies to create flavors for almost everything we consume. Think yogurts, sports drinks, chips, frozen meals, gum, toothpaste, liquor, everything. And even so, a lot about this industry remains the same. It has maintained this sort of shroud of privacy and secrecy, even in the digital age, which feels like a holdover from their secret society days. Please tell me that they have a secret handshake. Oh, please tell me that. I wish. I don't know. I, I love secret handshakes. I love secrecy. I love secret flavor worlds. So naturally, I wanted to dig in even further. I began to look into this company called Givadon. They're a multi-billion dollar Swiss company. They're big, they have over 100 locations, but with only 150 or so flavorists who are responsible for all the work they do. Flavorists who have this knowledge programmed into their bodies, who are curating everything we eat and drink. And by the way, I'm certain Givadon does not make flavors for Jelly Belly, but I did hope that understanding what these flavors do could help me get to the bottom of this jelly bean mystery. So, when I started researching Givadon, I came across this, uh, what appears to be a recruitment video, uh, and I want to show it to you. Just watch this with me. Our senses impact how we feel. All right, so we have a woman picking up a beautiful pink scarf. Oh, she's gorgeous. A scent brings us closer to a loved one. And she's looking at a picture of a, an older lady. And now sniffing said scarf. Every day, everywhere. <laughs> Beautiful shots of cities and cherry blossoms. Flavors and fragrances surround us. There's like rolling clouds, a sunrise. They awaken our memories, shaping moments of delight. And the wonderful woman is touching everything. Every single like foliage she's walked <laughs> by in this video, she's just <laughs> lightly grazed with her fingertips. Making simple interactions special. I'm starting to have an English accent. <laughs> Working at Givoudan is inspiring. It's the opportunity to make a difference, touching people's lives in many different ways. And what about you? <laughs> Engage your senses and impact your world. Join Givoudan. <laughs> I feel very affected by that video. I'm going to join reality and come back to you, Sarah. Please do. What do you think? What did I just see? What was that? 
That was um, surreal. Yeah, you can say it. It's culty. Oh, it's, we're way past culty. Uh, but it worked. I want to own a pink scarf and walk by a swamp and eat truffles and drink gin and tonics. I know, me it, too. Is that the job? I think that's the point of it, yeah. So after seeing this insane video, I had to find out who are these mysterious flavor makers? Who are the people that can look at a chart detailing the molecular composition of aroma compounds in a sweaty sock and build a flavor that tastes to us like a sweaty sock? So, um, actually, somehow I snagged myself an invitation. Was it easy to get into the place? I just called and asked it. Really? <laughs> it actually wasn't that hard at all. So I'm waiting in this weird lobby in a giant office park in Cincinnati, Ohio, and it smells kind of like popcorn. It was buttery and savory, but I couldn't quite place it. And there was this big wall that blocked off the lobby area I was sitting in. It had a, a video display that had the Jividan logo. And there's this series of rotating images playing. A meadow, a babbling brook, vintage wallpaper, and a forest. And underneath their slogan, Engage Your Senses. And on the wall next to me, there's this giant word map of other Jividan locations. Sydney, Singapore, Hong Kong, Buenos Aires, Johannesburg. And I'm intimidated by the hugeness. It, it felt like I was dropped inside a wacky, magical flavor factory. I'm like little Charlie and I have my golden ticket. And I'm finally here after this incredibly long journey, waiting for Willy Wonka to open the gates and let me in. Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. And so then two women pop out from behind the door and introduce themselves to me. Natalie is one of them. She's very petite in size, but not in personality. She's got short brown hair and big brown eyes, and she's wearing this bright yellow blazer and a chunky yellow beaded necklace, which I would later realize is a perfectly Natalie outfit choice. Kim is the other one, and she's almost as small. She listens really intently when you talk to her, and she sort of nods her head with each and every phrase, like she's hanging on every word you're saying. But she talks really fast, especially when she's talking about her work. She's got one green eye and one blue eye, which both sort of light up when she talks about flavor chemistry. And I'm really nervous at this point. I feel like I've been on this flavor quest for months now, and I'm finally about to meet the people who can give me the answers I seek. And these two women are my Willy Wonkas, and I'm just looking at them with this gut-wrenching feeling that they're about to disappoint me. Did they? No, not at all. After the break, the conclusion to our sock-flavored jelly belly journey. Well, it's time for this week's Bob's Red Mill Quiz, where I subject one of my America's Test Kitchen colleagues to a test of their grain knowledge. And this week's victim, <coughs> I mean contestant, is Molly Birnbaum. She's had her fair share of breakfast on the go. So let's see just how much she knows about oatmeal cups. 
Hello. Hey, Molly. Hey, Bridget. Are you ready to talk all about oatmeal cups? I was born ready to talk about oatmeal cups. <laughs> you are the professional. <laughs> all right. Bob's Red Mills single serving organic classic oatmeal cup is ready in how many minutes? Is it 20 minutes, five minutes, or three minutes? Well, I really hope it's not 20 minutes, so I'm going to have to go with three minutes. You need to get an agent right now. You nailed it. Bob's Red Mill's Hardy Organic Oatmeal Cup is ready in just three minutes, and it's packed with fiber, protein, iron. You just add hot water or you pop it in the microwave, and it's just great for breakfast on the go. So learn more at bobsredmill.com and use the offer code ATK at checkout to get 25% off your next purchase. Kohler faucets are incredibly functional. They're hard-wearing, and they feature sprays with some really cool technology. The powerful, precise ring spray is great for everyday cleanup, but for really tough jobs, there's the sweep spray. Its wide blade of water forcefully pushes food off the plate and scraps right down the drain. Now, if you need even more power to clean or you want to fill a pot with water super fast, Boost Spray technology increases the flow rate of water by 30%. But sometimes a gentle approach is best. Think of washing delicate fruits and vegetables with no bruising or tearing. The Berry Soft Spray with its wide light spray is perfect for that job. Kohler, for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hey, Proof listeners, the Jules Sous Vide is featured on the cover of our new cookbook, Sous Vide for Everybody, the easy foolproof cooking technique that's sweeping the world. Cooking with Jewel is hands-free, so while you're entertaining holiday guests or just a few friends, Jewel is working while you get to hang out. Jewel, perfect food every time. To get yours, visit chefsteps.com slash Jewel and use code ATK2018 to get $15 off for a limited time. That's chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E, code ATK2018. break, our producer, Sarah Joyner, was about to finally peek behind the flavorous curtain. So, Sarah, what was it like? It was exactly as impressive as you'd expect it to be. All right, so we can just walk to my bench. Okay. So this would be like a lineup. And then let's pull the um, Iannones because we missed that earlier. So I have one customer that calls me Princess Peach because I do do a lot of peach work. <laughs> this is Kim Jelg. I'm Kim Jelg, and I have been with Givadon for 23 years. Kim is a senior flavorist at Givadon, and I was extremely drawn to her. She's kind of magnetic. Her voice bounces like a tap dancer when she talks. From a starting place, how do you kind of get to this point? And this is my balance. This is where I work. So this is kind of exactly what I would do. If this were a lineup of something I were going to compound, I would have it all lined up and ready, and I'd have my formula out, and I've got pipettes and spoons. I've got a drawer of beakers. And uh, depending on what I'm making, I just I start right here and then I stir plate. Kim has been doing this job for two decades, but she still lights up when she gets into the nitty-gritty technical details of flavor chemistry. It's almost like one of those rare couples you sometimes meet who are still in love 50 years after their first date. I'm going to add some fruity notes, some of those esters up front, so that I'm going to get impact when you taste. I'm going to add um, nuanced notes, maybe some florals, some greens to add authenticity, and then also the sulfur. And we've got to like be careful with that, that it's at the right level. 
again to the more time I spend with her, the more I realize how amazing she is. And this is someone who has transformed her nose into an instrument and her brain into a Rolodex of individual molecular flavor identities. And then this one's green fruity. So basically, cis-3-hexanyl acetate. So one's the acetate and one is the alcohol. And then there's Natalie. My family will, like, try to trick me and test me. Like, they know I really don't like truffle. And so, yeah, like, somebody will be like, oh, try these french fries. And I'm like, oh, these are disgusting. Oh, like... I told you, I, like, why don't you believe me? I do this for a living. Natalie is another expert flavorist. My name's Natalie Taki. I'm the director of our Consumer Sensory Insights team. She is an interpreter. She translates client feedback like it's too fruity into the flavor is right, but it's a little too sweet and the color is slightly off-putting and I'm eating it in a room with bright fluorescent lights. She talks with a wide smile. She's good at talking. She's also incredibly good at explaining flavor science. So, your tongue really only tastes the five basic tastes. You know, salty, sour, sweet, bitter, umami. Everything else is through your sense of smell. So when you're eating or drinking something and you can tell what flavor it is, it's because of your sense of smell. And you've got all these receptors inside your nose. There's something in your skull called the cribiform plate, and it sort of looks like a sponge. There's all kinds of tiny, tiny holes that allow those aroma chemicals to then be transmitted into your nerves that can tell what you're evaluating. Natalie confirms what we know to be true about the role of smell and flavor. As a flavorist, she mostly builds flavor purely by layering aromatic molecules. But while smell is the most important thing, it's not the only thing that matters. All of your senses are really important when you're talking about how you perceive food and drink. So think about sight. It's a visual cue. You do eat first with your eyes, right? So you see a drink that's red, you expect that it's going to taste like cherry or strawberry. It's sending cues to your brain on what to expect. There's also safety there too. You see mold growing on bread. You know it's not safe to eat it. Even sound. Natalie told me she worked at a brewery once, analyzing consumer complaints and trying to link them to quality issues in the plant. Once there was a flood of complaints for flat beer, but she checked the beer and it was fine. It wasn't flat at all. And as we went through, we realized that the lid manufacturer had changed and we were shipping lids from a location in New York, now out to Colorado. Well, the lids made a different sound when they opened and it didn't have the sound that they were used to when that can opened. And even though there was nothing wrong with the beer, hundreds of complaints for flat beer because the lid sounded different. Which is to say there are a variety of factors that contribute to how something tastes that are tricky to pin down And besides the impact of our other senses that sort of skew and distort taste and retronasal signals, ingredients can do a tango all their own. One is called enhancement or potentiation. And this is when one substance is present with another, the intensity of that one substance is perceived as higher. Or synergy. So... The the total is greater than the sum of its parts, right? Something might be sweet, like something might be strawberry flavored, and when you combine them, it seems sweeter and the strawberry notes seem higher. 
So combined, both of their intensities are greater. Each tweak of the levels of one ingredient can push a different ingredient into a new behavior or characterization. And this is the key to understanding that gap between human and machine. Those other factors, environment, culture, surrounding, smell, sight, or the molecular interplay between ingredients, those factors are what the machine can't evaluate. We perceive things differently based on our experiences and our history. And what's important about sensory as a science is that machines can tell you how much sodium is in a soup, but they can't tell you how salty it is. Human beings have to tell you those sort of things. Yeah, I bet my experiences with laundry will affect the way that I taste a sock-flavored bean. Oh, but Let's get back to flavor. Yes, let's. So flavors are aromatic molecules. Some simple flavors are just single molecules, one note, if you will. Others are more complex. They are layered combinations of those single molecules. Kim explained to me that in the flavor universe, there are categories of molecules that function in specific ways. Some of the materials that we use in flavors are functional. So esters, ketones, aldehydes, acids, alcohols, sulfurs, nitrogen components, they all play a role in flavors. And so as a flavorist, we start keying in on those. This list, ketones, aldehydes, acids, these are categories. They are a hierarchy of molecular organization that sorts materials based on their qualities. Not only their molecular qualities, but also their behaviors in a flavor. They sort of express themselves at different moments in the eating experience, and they have different shapes physically, too. Esters, for example, are essential to fruity flavors. And these materials are fairly small molecularly. They're used for front-end impact. They're sharp. But they also dissipate quickly because of their small size and volatility. Esters are very volatile. And if you open up a beverage and you pop that top, that aroma that you get is those esters, right? But if I build a flavor with just esters, you're going to take one drink and go, ooh, that's really good. And then you're going to like, ooh, it's gone. And then you're going to taste, you know, whatever base is left or it's just water or nothingness. On the other hand, lactones are larger molecules. They're described as creamy, dairy, peachy. They're a type of material used to provide the perception of volume, roundness, and size in a flavor. They show up in the middle or at the end. I had a particularly hard time understanding this before I was able to taste it, but I think Natalie describes it well as I was smelling a mango sample. Yeah, like when, uh, when you were talking about the creaminess of a mango, you know, you're smelling this, you're not getting any texture or any mouthfeel, mm -hmm. but you'll get that sensation. And what, what that is is actually these lactones that are giving you that perception that there's something creamy, mm -hmm. but there's nothing on your tongue. And there's countless other categories of flavor compounds, terpenes, ketones, aldehydes, phenols, oxides, that combine and layer together to create one sensation, one complex and beautiful flavor, like an orchestra. And 
And within each category, hundreds and hundreds of distinct molecules or potential ingredients which have specific traits. Maybe they're earthy or woody, or maybe they're green or red or yellow. With apples, if I want to create a golden delicious apple versus a green apple, I'm going to probably use that isoamyl acetate because again, it's going to push towards more yellow and not as green or red. Isoamyl acetate is that really identifiable candy banana flavor. Think of Runt's candy. I want to be clear that it's not actually yellow physically, and it has no place in an apple flavor technically, but our brains don't see it that way. At the right level, it can help us imagine the color yellow. It can be the key to the difference between a yellow apple or a red apple flavor. And we have, like, on our palette to use, I don't know, a few thousand materials. These materials are all identifiable by their chemical name and a descriptor, a sort of client-friendly shared language that flavorists have developed to be able to essentially set a company training standard or to have conversations with their clients. How many of those do you feel like you can identify just off the bat? Gosh, probably close to a thousand. Just, you know, okay, these are green and I can go through like cis-3-hexanol is green fatty, cis-3-hexanol acetate is green fruity, um, trans-2-hexanol is going to be green apple, um, nonadinal is going to be watermelon or cucumber. So you, you just, yeah, narrow it down. And with these materials, flavorists toil away at their benches, day in and day out, making the flavors that they've created for us to love. So these are flavors that you've, this is what you've done in just the last nine months. Correct, correct. How many bottles are in here? Oh gosh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, like say eight shelves by two, three, four, I don't know, 12 shelves, 96 times, say, 10 in a row. I don't know, 1,000 flavors. In nine months. Mm -hmm. Well, I feel like I've taken advantage of the small ways that this work enters into my day-to-day life. I know, me too. Behind every stick of gum, every chip, every sip of flavored seltzer is a carefully crafted formula and a flavorist. Obviously, like any modern industry, the flavor world doesn't function in a purely analog way. There are tools, and many of them, that these flavor houses use to get the jobs done and to get them done fast. It's good to meet you. Okay. So this is the uh, Creation Tools Lab, and here they invent all kinds of different devices and tools and equipment. The crowd favorite, designed, engineered, and patented by Jividan, is the Minivas. Uh, and think of it as a device that you can connect to your computer, and you can plug in the aroma ingredients that make up a flavor, and you can create any combination in real time, and you can smell it. This is Rahul Siva, a research scientist in Jividan's Creation Tools Lab. This instrument he's describing looks like a large black high-tech briefcase, like there's $1 million bundled up inside. It's attached to a computer screen that's displaying a bunch of digital faders, like a soundboard, that you can slide up or down to adjust your formula. Attached to this briefcase are three bendy tubes that jut out. At the end of the tubes are nose-shaped ports. For sniffing. Mm-hmm. 
It's extremely reminiscent of that scene from the 1960s that we talked about last week, those Colgate Palmolive employees who attached a sniffing port to their gas chromatograph. So let's say if you are working on a strawberry flavor, you can combine the ingredients in a certain way and you can make a juicy strawberry, or you can combine them in a different way and make a floral strawberry. So you can literally come up with infinite different combinations and you can smell what that combination smells like in almost real time. Essentially, the Minivas is a composition tool. Inside the machine are 30 channels to which you can load single molecules or flavor blends. As you adjust the faders on the computer, a steady stream of your flavor composition exits the port and you can smell it. When Kim and Natalie are creating these flavors, they're working with really delicate ratios. I mean, imagine you're a chemist and you spend time composing the perfect flavor and you want to add just a tiny nuance of something weird, but you overdo it and then the whole thing tastes terrible. At your bench, you have to dump your mixture out and start over again. On the minivas, however, you just click a button and... And let me be clear here because we've spent a lot of time talking about how machines can't make flavors. And they can't. The Minivas, this advanced tech, is built to be codependent with the human nose. It's only as good as the flavorist who's operating it. Turns out, I might have some natural ability myself. How did I do? Ooh, delicious. Do you, you like still it? Have, I do, and you still have one more key if you wanted to add it. Oh, the sugar. Which is that That's sugary. That's a beautiful mango. Yeah. Um, say that again. That is a beautiful <laughs> mango. <laughs> I didn't get you on microphone there. <laughs> Um, yeah, let's do a little bit of sugar. Let's put in... The Minivast was just the beginning. Jividon has been pushing really hard into the science and technology space. You know, they were very generous with me. They toured me around the winding halls of their labs. In each room, there was another crazy research development, half of which I was asked not to disclose in this podcast. Remember that Rolodex of thousands of flavor ingredients that they use? They're trying to find more, literally scouring the earth for fruits, vegetables, or anything that they can use to extract a never-before-used flavor compound. Or to take it full black mirror, they're cloning out human taste receptors into cells from rodents, so in order to develop salt or sugar replacements, they can test and test and test over and over again with these cloned cells not having to bother with a human taste panel. They've got virtual reality eating experiences and flavor preference prediction algorithms, which is to say, they're not only developing flavors here, they're revolutionizing what it means to eat. And yet, with all this tech and advanced science, they're still beholden to people, to Kim and to Natalie. I think it's so interesting too, if you think about like an artist palette, if the three of us all had the same palette with the same colors, we would paint something yep. completely different. Yeah, during our training, that happened a lot. Here's 10 materials, you guys all make a flavor. There were six of us in our training group, six different flavors. I made a peach, somebody made a grape, somebody made an apple. I mean, it was just the artistry piece comes in and my personal interpretation. It makes sense. Thousands of materials, literally endless possibilities tiny additions can have a cascading effect on nuance. 
I think this is why the flavor industry is such a secretive arms race. Each client is chasing the possibility of putting the next big thing to market. And think pumpkin spice. Clients are working with these flavorists trying to discover the next it flavor. And there's so much exploring left to do. So many flavors we haven't experienced yet. Meanwhile, the Kims and Natalies of the world are toiling away in their labs in their chemist lab coats, splashing colors on the wall like Jackson Pollock, trying to paint the next masterpiece. <laughs> Does that mean we should get like a really vulgar one? <laughs> so great. Right. So, so we need one, one of those ones that have like... Don't worry, I have not forgotten why I came here. Rotten egg and butter popcorn, a dead oh. fish. So what is in a sock-flavored jelly bean? You know what? I want yeah. I want to do stinky socks. I want you yeah. to try to tell me what you think is in it. Mm-hmm. This pink spotty one. So everybody go pink spotty one? So it's either sweaty socks or what's my other option? Tutti fruity. Oh, okay. Oh, that's it. It's isovaleric for sure. It's cheesy, fatty acids like decanoic, dodecanoic acid. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's got some buttery in there too. Can't crayon, waxy. Um, I'm thinking caproic acid. So if you were tasked with making it from yep. scratch, yep. what would you? How would you start? You could do analytical analysis mm-hmm. on these stinky things, figure out what's in there, and at least in the, you would know kind of. You wouldn't know the ratios next necessarily, but. Like, like you some idea of analytical analysis. So we do like GC volatile analysis. That's it. So Our old friend, the GCMS. To get you at least a starting place. Could you capture the headspace yeah. around yeah. the stinky sack? <laughs> they would probably pulverize it and extract it with something and then inject that into the machine. But it's all smell, right? So you don't have to taste any of these things to know what the flavor is. You just smell it. I would start with my cheesy materials, like disovaleric, butyric, methylbutyric acid, and then I'd build in fatty acids and fatty materials like uh, caproic acid, Ah, Sarah, you solved it. Thank goodness, because what would my life be if I didn't know where dirty sock jelly beans were made and how they did it? Mm-hmm. So we had jelly beans, a dinosaur, secret society. Uh, it's been a real wild ride. It really has. <laughs> it really has. <laughs> well, there's only one thing left to do. And what's that? <laughs> Please tell me. No, no. I'm so scared right now. What is that? This tutti fruity or stinky socks. This is stinky socks. <laughs> Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Flavor nerd Sarah Joyner is our producer. I mean, wait, hold on. Are you excited? Are you like, how do you feel? I'm, I have squeezed a human being out of my body, (laughs) and that was more pleasant (laughs) than this moment. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton. Editing by Caitlin Kelleher, Sarah Joyner, and Jordan Pearson. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester. Post-production support from Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. (laughs) Okay, good luck. All right, cheers. Cheers. See you on the other side. Oh, God. Jack Bishop is a volatile flavor compound and chief creative officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. 
Thanks again to our sponsors, Bob's Red Mill, Kohler, Chef Steps, and Nescoffier. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen. Oh, God, how did they do that? Well, we know how they did that. Why did they do that? (laughs) If you want to see the secret Wonka-like world of flavorists with your own eyes, we put pictures of Sarah's visit to Givadon up on our website. That's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. We've also got some really cool images of those 1960s researchers experimenting with the GC. Go check it out. Oh, and we've got one more thing for you. If you like Proof, be sure to subscribe so you'll get new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review on Apple Podcasts? Because that really helps other people find the show.